listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. So, Tommy, we're going to begin with the first question to you. First question is, what is Christian yoga? What is Christian yoga? So, what is Christian yoga? I'll be slightly frank as I answer this. There's no such thing as Christian yoga. Um, There is yoga... And there are Christians who may think that they can practice yoga. But to try and Christianize what is ultimately a sort of New Age Eastern spirituality, uh, something that has its roots in Hinduism, to try and Christianize that is really just unacceptable and dangerous. Um, Now obviously, what they call holy yoga or Christian, it is one of these trends that we are seeing increasing in the church for whatever reason lack of biblical instruction I would say in the western world it is often just presented yoga is kind of harmless some people think it's just stretching or some sort of way to keep yourself fit and fit as a physical activity however often and more often now I hear it presented as a way to sort of find um, peace sort of contentment I mean, you just calm your body and calm your mind and that understanding is much more in line with the sort of the Eastern concept of yoga. Yoga actually means or unity, really. And it's talking about oneness, finding your oneness with the infinite Brahman, which is the sort of God conception in Hinduism. That, that's what it means. When it, when, when it says peace and enlightenment, you find peace and enlightenment. They're talking about enlightenment in the sense of spiritual growth as you come nearer to connection with the oneness of Brahman. That's what they're talking about, okay? So we just can't Christianize that. And one of the problems with this, it's pantheistic in its roots. They don't really have a distinction necessarily between God and man. So there's no, all it is is about finding that connection. And there's a form of yoga called Hatha Yoga, which is basically one that particularly focuses on physical posture. So all these positions, lotus position, all these different things that you see in yoga that we often assume are just good ways to stretch out the body. That's not what they're for at all. The purpose of them is to help you find enlightenment and connect with a Hindu deity, ultimately. That, that, is, that is the point of it. Um, and breathing techniques, that's another big issue, but, uh, physical posture and breathing techniques. Um, and I think we're actually seeing a secular uh, version of this now in schools. We call it mindfulness. Focuses on breathing techniques to help people find peace and calm down and, and all these sorts of things. And I think these all have the same sort of roots. Um, the problem with it is, is it points us really to ourselves as the source of all these things. Slow down, say these chants, do these positions, and you will find and have peace, enlightenment, and all these sorts of things. For a Christian, the Christian gospel, the Christian message, we know that God's answer to peace and um, anxiety, all these sorts of things are to be found primarily in the word of God and through a relationship with Jesus Christ Mm. and that's the only way, so as far as I'm concerned a Christian has absolutely no business doing yoga, do stretches, be be fit, that's fine, but not yoga Um, that's how I'd answer that next question how old do you think the earth is? (laughs) that's an easy one (laughs) okay um (laughs) Now, I could skirt around this, but I figured I'm just going to go into my particular view on this. Let me just say, it's, this is a controversial topic, in Christian, even within the Christian church. In a room this size, probably not everyone's going to agree with what I'm going to say here. So, basically, I'm going to give you my opinion, my view. I'm going to tell you why I hold that view. 
and that'll be the end of it, no discussion. Okay? <laughs> um, so, where do we start? Let's, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's the place you start. So, in some way or form, every Christian should be a creationist of sorts. Okay, you, you've got that, at least that initial element of creation there. Now, the issue really becomes, and the question that everyone wants to know, is how long did, did God take to create? Was it six days? Was it billions of years? And these are the questions, and this is where you see the division come within, usually in evangelical circles, between those what we would call young earth creationists and those what we would call old earth creationists. And there are some other, other groups, but for, for the sake of brevity, let's just fix it on those two. Now, as Doug said, I'm an associate speaker with Creation Ministries International. That is a, that is a young earth creation organisation. So I, I do not believe that the earth is 4.6 billion years old. I believe the earth is much younger in the approximately six to 10,000 years old. Now I know when you say that, that's a shock statement. That, that makes a lot of people be like, excuse me? And I understand that because the idea of deep time is just so ingrained in our, narr in our culture's narrative that it, it's hard to escape from. And like I say, many Christians would disagree vehemently with me on that. But let me just explain to you why I hold that view and then hopefully give you some food for thought on that one. The first one would be an issue of biblical authority. Okay, I believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's the only eyewitness testimony that we have of the creation event. Okay, and when you look at the Bible, you, you have to understand that is the authority that we have. Okay, we don't take our authority from anywhere else. Now, obviously, people who disagree with me would claim, would claim the same argument, and that's, uh, that's absolutely fine. But moving forward from this, I believe that there are enough historical indicators in the Bible that you can come up with an approximate age. Basically, you would use what we call the chronogenealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Okay, a genealogy is a list of names, family line. A chronogenealogy is a list of names that also provides ages and dates. Okay, the, these, are, these are the sorts of things you find. And we have genealogies that go all the way back to Adam. And most people add it up using that, using the New Testament ones, and using some other historical markers that you get in archaeology and the Bible. And uh, this is a very, very brief version of this, understand. But you know, roughly, approximately 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 from Abraham to Christ, 2,000 from Christ to where we are today. That, that's a rough idea of how, of how it's... Um, sort of formulated. Some people would immediately respond, but there are gaps in the genealogies, to which they are right to a certain degree. Uh, the, the genealogies we have in the Gospels do contain gaps. Many Jewish genealogies do contain, contain gaps. I personally don't believe that Genesis 5, the chrono genealogies, actually do have gaps. I believe they're closed. But for the sake of argument, let's just assume there's a gap in between every single name in those genealogies. All that does is get you thousands of years, it doesn't get you billions of years. So it's, not, it's a bit of a kind of red herring, it's not really the point that we need to argue. Deep time, billions of years, has to be inserted somewhere else in the Bible. Okay? In order, you can't put it anywhere else. So the only place that it can be inserted is somewhere in Genesis 1. Okay? And this is why when people come to the Bible, um, all of a sudden sort of the rules of grammar break down, all of a sudden we don't know what words mean, we don't know all the basic rules of language, we don't understand much. And you get all these different views, you get the framework view, you get the gap theory, the framework hypothesis, the day-age theory, the literary <laughs> hypothesis, all these different ways that are basically an attempt to try and fit deep time into the Bible. Okay? Some of them are much better than others, uh, some of them are re will really make you think, but ultimately I believe that they are not being, deep time is not being read out of the text, it's being read into the text. 
And that, and that for me, is, is a hermeneutical issue. Okay, that's a problem. Now, the issue then becomes, so, you know, how long, you know, what was it, a day, is a day a day? Or is it a much deeper, sort of longer period of time? Some people will argue that um, Genesis 1 is poetry. And that, and that will be the angle that they take. So the, the literary hypothesis and the framework hypothesis do that. This is sort of a poetical narrative that was designed to teach theological truths. It wasn't ever expected to be taken sort of in a literal term. I hate that word literal. I, I just prefer a plain forward reading, you know, as grammar dictates, which we don't usually have any trouble understanding, but we do in Genesis 1 for some reason. Okay, this is because there are outside concerns being read into the text there. So that's Genesis 1. How long were the days? Is it poetry? None of these arguments for me are convincing. I believe there's a particular construction of the Hebrew in uh, Genesis 1 that uses a particular grammatical construction that is typical of narrative. In English it's kind of and then, and then, and then. It's called a vav consecutive. You find it in historical narrative. You do not find it in poetical literature. You find it through the book of 1 and 2 Kings and all those sorts of books. You do not find it in the wisdom literature and you find it all through Genesis 1. Therefore, most uh, Hebrew grammarians will tell you that at least, you know, forgetting all the outside scientific concerns, at least according to the text, the text was meant to be intended to be read in the straightforward manner. Day is a day, particularly when it's found with a number and with morning and evening bracketing it. Seems fairly straightforward. And for me, those arguments are, are quite convincing. That's one reason. The next reason would be there are some theological concerns for me. If you accept a 4.5, 4.6 billion year old Earth, you have billions of years of fossil record of death, destruction, bloodshed, disease, cancers, tumours, bone diseases, thorns, all existing before Adam and Eve. Okay, now I for me the Bible teaches that death came through sin and through sin through one man, Adam. It would seem to be that that is a result of the fall. And we need that as an apologetic argument for when people ask us that question, why is there death and suffering, why is the world it is, because we always say it's the fall. But if, we're actually, if you told an old earth position and you say it's the fall, you still have to account for the millions of years of death and suffering that is underneath the fall, so to speak. The, the, the dating just doesn't work. So that's a big problem. Another issue is Mark 10.6 for me, where Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Humanity, according to Jesus, was existed at the beginning of creation. Okay, in a secular evolutionary worldview, an old Earth view, you have a 13.8 billion year universe, 4.5 billion year old Earth, first life about 2 billion years ago, modern Homo sapiens about 100,000 years ago. Okay, if you put that on a line, that is humans are at the end of creation, not at the beginning. So for Jesus to say they existed from the beginning of creation is factually inaccurate. And that's a problem. I've, I've read many articles from, from uh, old earth creationist sites and theistic evolutionary sites who do in fact argue that Jesus was mistaken. They would argue that in his incarnate form he was limited in certain aspects of his knowledge. And they'll always use the, the fact that he didn't know the day or the hour. Um, however, there's a big difference between Jesus not being revealed something, not knowing the day or the hour as his father hasn't revealed it to him in his incarnation, and actually saying something that is incorrect. Okay, there's a big difference. So there's some theological issues. Now, sorry, this is a big, bigger question. I have to go a little bit longer on this one. Obviously, the main question people want to know is what about the, the conflict with science? Okay, this obviously brings me into a conflict with science. Um, and I would say, absolutely, I, I don't believe it does, but I understand why, why we would think that. 
I like to make a, a distinction between what we would refer to as operational science, that is science that we see today in the laboratories that you know opens the DNA, sends rockets into space, it's observable, it's testable, and it's repeatable, and origin science, which is not testable, not observable, and not repeatable. And there's often, and I think this is the case, when you peep behind the curtain a little bit, you'll see that there is a huge worldview and philosophical focus that interprets people's understanding. You must remember, science doesn't actually tell us anything. Okay? Scientists tell us things. And scientists have a worldview through which they interpret these things usually. And you see this all the time. You see, the old Earth view, I mean, it really became popular in the 19th century. And it, it became popular in the field of geology. Okay, the field of geology, that's the study of rocks, and particularly rock layers and these sorts of things. It was a man named Charles Lyell. He, wrote, he was a lawyer turned geology, geologist. He wrote a three-volume book, Principles of Ge Geology. Okay, and in this book, he, he popularised what's known as un uniformitarianism. This is the view that the present is the key to the past. So you would look how long it takes sedimentary rock layers to, to, to be laid down today, and you would think, right, okay, now we just extrapolate that back to the past. That's how long it has always taken. So you, then you go to the Grand Canyon and you see millions of these layers and you do your calculations and, you, and obviously the Earth is billions of years old. Now that view, the, the two views at that time were catastrophism, which was the view that the scriptural geologists were holding, and then you had the view of Lyle. Of Lyle. However, we know from all of Lyle's personal letters that we still have, he hated the biblical worldview. And he is quoted as saying, I really want to remove the influence of Moses from geology. Remove Genesis, basically, from, from geology. And obviously, a lot of people wanted to remove God from life. It was a Christian culture, although that doesn't mean anything. I'm sure we all know that. But generally, things were, it was quite hard to come against what the Christians were saying. But Charles Lyell was one of the men who popularised this. The story goes a bit deeper. When Darwin was aboard the Beagle, and he was sailing around, forming his views on evolution, going to the Galapagos... One of his main texts that he consulted was Charles Lyell's three-volume Principles of Geology. And it helped him to think in the terms of millions of years. And that kind of paved the way for his theories of evolution. Now, one of the things why Darwin would have been so keen to do that is because without millions and billions of years, evolution is not even remotely plausible. They, need, they have to have those billions of years. And this is why you may see the, what they call the culture wars, particularly in America, this is even more... Creation evolution is such a culture battle, you know, and people from both sides represent it terribly, but th that, is, that is the issue here. It, without that time, evolution cannot even be remotely plausible. I don't happen to think it's plausible even with the time, but when you're talking, you know, do we really have any idea what billions of years is like? I mean, it's such a ridiculous amount of time, but we just throw it around, we can err, we can err by 20 billion, 20, you know, such a big period of time. So they're, they're, those, they're those issues. And because of that dogmatism that we get, I feel we, we're not shown many of the scientific evidences that do prove a young Earth. Because there are many of them. If we've got time, a couple more minutes, and I'll, I'll just give you, I'll just give you just very two quickly ones to show you how this game is played. Scientists keep finding soft tissue, organic matter, DNA, red blood cells, protein, kerogen, all these different things in fossils that are supposedly 65 million to 500 million years old. They even found ink in a 65 million year old squid that they were able to extract and had an artist draw an octopus with it. Now the thing about this is, soft tissue should not last for that long. Okay, in fact we know from observable experiments that people have done today, it cannot last for more than 90,000 years. 
Okay, so why, the question is, why is it being found in, in fossils that are 65 million years old? Uh, Mary Schweitzer, the, the, the secular scientist who discovered it, her, her words were telling because she said it shouldn't be there, but we know these bones are 65 million years old, so there must be another way that it's been preserved. And it's a rescuing device, and this is why it's not really a scientific issue for me, because there's always a rescuing device. And there are plenty more examples I could give like that. You can always come up with a rescuing device. So for me, there's a lot of philosophy that goes in there. That's my view. There's a lot of people who hold that view, and there's a lot of people who disagree with it, but they're my reasons for holding it. Thank you. Tommy. Were the Gospels chosen by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD? So this is another really good question. Has anyone heard, I mean someone obviously put it in the box, so I, I think someone's talked to me about it, I can't remember who it was now, but George, that was it, yeah, yeah, George. This is a common accusation, okay, so the story sort of goes, um, this wicked emperor Constantine, he, uh, he wanted to su suppress certain books of the Bible to have control, so he convened this council in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, uh, whereby he was presented with 80-plus different Gospels that were circulating at the time. Um, some, some accounts of the story put it up to 120. And he then selected the ones that he wanted, the four that we have, for various reasons. He got rid of, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and Barnabas and all these false pseudepigraphal Gospels that we, that we have. But when the skeptic asks this question, they're all, obviously all Gospels are considered to be the same thing and valid. Um, and it was Constantine who said, we're going to have these four, uh, the rest will be burnt, and that's that. And, and that's pretty much how the story goes. Now, what, what, is the, what is the truth behind this? This is popularized, sort of in the academy, you won't find this. You'll find it on the internet, and you'll find it on blogs, and you find it in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. That was, he used that in that book, you know, that, that was the kind of story along with various other things that were crafted around and it's the church, a conspiracy within the church to suppress these things because one of these gospels said that Jesus was married and on and on. Yeah, it's great for conspiracy theorists, these sorts of things. So, so what is the truth behind it? Quite frankly, there is not one shred of truth that any of that ever happened at the Council of Nicaea. The only thing that's true about that is that there was a church council in Nicaea in 325 AD, and it was Constantine who convened that council. He convened that council to try and solve an issue that was, could cause, could sort of blow up and cause disunity in his empire. He was ever the politician. Okay? He wanted to kind of settle things down and make sure that this issue within the church did not spill out into the empire. And the issue was to do with the teaching of uh, who was Jesus Christ. Was he God, basically? There was a man named Arius around Alexandria at the time in Egypt, and he was teaching the view that God obviously was a created being. Again, kind of giving you the, the real brief highlights here. And there were people who were obviously standing against him. And this was getting quite, he was getting a lot of followers. So in the end, they decided they needed to convene a council. Okay, and this was it. And this is what they hashed out. Uh, a man named Athanasius, who was the kind of the orthodox defender, along with a few other people, they defended uh, what we would call the orthodox view of Christ. But that was what the Council of Nicaea was, uh, was about, primarily. There were lots of other small things that, that came from the Council, obviously the Nicene Creed. If any of you have read that, that's our main, one of our main church creeds. That was the result of this council. But, I mean, uh, Philip Schaff, who's an authoritative church historian, he wrote the eight-volume set, History of the Christian Church. He has a whole volume on the pre-Nicene church, and he says, and I'll quote him directly, 
the, the issue of the canon was not even discussed at Nicaea. Okay? So as far as I'm concerned, that's just a sort of a Dan Brown fantasy and it lives on in the internet. But it's, there's actually no historical truth to it, as far as I can tell. Okay, Tommy, next question. Um, why do we have anti-Semitism? Why do we have anti-Semitism? Let's answer it broadly, simply because of sin. Okay, that's a quick answer. Okay, racism is basically because of sin. Man is, a, we have a fallen nature, therefore we engage in behaviours that are fundamentally sinful. Racism obviously is a fundamental denial of the ontological equality that we have as the human race. What that means is basically we're all image bearers of God and racism is really a denial of that. And therefore it, it, it goes against what the Bible teaches. Now, however, I do believe there's something slightly unique about anti-Semitism. Okay, anti-Semitism being defined as that particular hatred, irrational hatred of the Jewish people, either individuals or as the Jewish nation state. Um, I do believe there is something unique about that. You see, the Jewish people, uh, you know, if you go through their history, they're an exiled people, they're a persecuted people. It's a history that's actually given to us in the Bible. They've been exiled and maligned and libeled, really more than any particular group in history, particular people group in history, just because they've got such a long history going back. Uh, they've been exiled from over 80 plus nations in the past 17,000 years. This country, was, we exiled Jews in about the 13th century and we didn't let them in for another couple of hundred years. So we're responsible with all this. But that is their, that is their history. There are many reasons given for this. Um, some kind of use the argument of what we call racial inferiority, or you know, the, the Jews are somehow inferior somehow. You, you saw some of that in the Holocaust, didn't you? Um, other people make arguments that Jews control the media, the Rothschild control the World Bank system, they're responsible for all the trouble in the Middle East, they're Christ killers, that was the one that was kind of more of an ancient one. On and on these lists could go. The question we need to ask is why? Okay, what is it? And I believe it's a spiritual issue, ultimately. It is a spiritual issue. Romans chapter 9, verses 3 to 5, I believe, explains this for us, where Paul is making this argument about Israel, and he says there, My kinsmen, the Israelites, whose, are the, who, whose is the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and he goes on. I want to just focus in on the covenants. To them belong the covenants. Now, the covenants are the means that God uses to distribute his blessings throughout the earth, all of them. That's the Abrahamic covenant, that's the Davidic covenant, that's the land covenant, that's the new covenant. We share our spiritual blessings from the new covenant. That's where we get them from. But the new covenant was made with Israel. And we are grafted in and we benefit from that spiritually, but it was still made with Israel. And a covenant is basically a promise from God. It's something that he has attached his name and his character to. Something that has to go according to how he said it would go. So th this is why, and his name is attached to the Jewish people, his covenant is attached to the Jewish people, therefore, that is why the Jewish people, I believe, are, are the specific object of such hatred. Because if Satan can, in his mind, anyway, I believe, break God, one of God's covenants, prove that God's covenants can't be kept, therefore it proves that he's not God and people should worship him and, and not Yahweh basically. And being Satan, being obviously the god of this world, small g, or the prince of the power of the air, he mobilizes all the forces he had with this world system to make sure that that happens. You see this, what do you read in Psalm 83, where it says, where it's talking about Israel's enemies, and it says, they make shrewd plans against my people, they conspire against my treasured ones, they say, come, let us uh, wipe out Israel as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. 
Let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. That's the refrain that the enemies of of Israel have always used, going back into ancient biblical times. And I could find you direct quotes from nations today that say that exact, exact same thing. You see, it's a spiritual issue. I believe Satan is behind it because this is, this is what he wants. He wants to break God's covenant. He's tried it many times. He tried to do it with the Egyptians. He did it with the Hittites. He did it with the Assyrians. He did it with the Babylonians. He tried it with Herod. He tried it with the Nazis. He tries it with the Mullahs. He tries it with, the, you know, with religion. He tried it through the Catholic Church. He tried it through Islam. And he tries it through politics. We see that today. Political anti-Semitism is absolutely rife. Just slightly diversion here. But... One of the most shocking things I've seen politically in a long time, um, probably since the expose of the Planned Parenthood and the recent SCOTUS media fiasco notwithstanding at the moment, but it was, happened just a few weeks back at one of the major British political parties, one that has held office for many years and may, ha- may hold office again in the future. They have their national conferences and at this conference, which is a conference where you're supposed to obviously deal with domestic issues, how it's best to run the country, there was at least 100 people waving Palestinian flags. Now, you might think, oh, that's fine, people can support Palestine. That's not what my issue is. They were put there, and by this particular political party that supports this organisation, a group called the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. And you'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. One of the things you'll always see with this organisation, on me, social media, it's hashtag free Palestine or hashtag Palestine will be free. Now that is an abbreviated quote of a longer chant that these people always sing at their rallies. And the chant is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Okay, now most people just don't really understand what that means. The river is the Jordan River on the east. The sea is the Mediterranean Sea on the west. Now between those two things, that is the whole of Israel. What that song and that line is basically saying is that we want the whole of Israel gone and we will not stop until the whole of Israel is Palestine. It's exactly the same as Psalm 83. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. They've just slightly changed the language. But that is is the point there. And we see this all the time today. However, as Christians, I don't think we we need to stand against this stuff, absolutely. We don't need to worry that they will ever succeed because in the very new covenant, where God promised, the one that we share our blessings in, that Jesus Christ instituted by his blood, that was made with the house of Israel, where he goes through Jeremiah 31. At the end of that passage, he makes this little argument where he says, you know, the Lord who gives the sun to give light by day and the stars to give light by night. And he says, if these fixed orders can depart, only then will the nation of Israel cease, will the offspring of Israel cease to be a nation before me. He's basically saying, as long as the sun and the stars are in the sky, Israel is a nation, my covenant is secure, I am God. It's a spiritual issue. <laughs> Where did baptism come from? Uh, referring to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, was it Noah? And why did Jesus have to be baptized if he was sinless? Can you just read the verse yeah. for me? Shall I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's read, the, read the verse if we could. Yeah. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Uh, I'm going to pick it up actually in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so I'll give my answer to what I think the question was getting at. Um, what is the origin of baptism? And then obviously, kind of part B, why did Jesus need to be baptized? And looking at that verse in 1 Peter that mentions Noah, and that it kind of has that argument where it says, corresponding to this or the antitype um, to this, baptism now saves you. Now, we need to be careful when we come to a text, particularly a, you know, a first century Jewish text, that we don't take with it 2,000 years of ecclesiastical controversy, whether it's immersion or sprinkling or Peter baptism or salvational baptism or all these different sorts of things that we can bring from our church history and culture and try and put that into the text and understand it. Now obviously we go to the text for understanding, but we need to understand this firstly with the culture where it was written. And I don't think that he's kind of claiming that what happened with Noah was baptism in any sense. I think he's making what we call an argument by analogy quite a common way to make an argument, and is using the water of Noah as that sort of point of reference there. That is the analogy. That's why, in my translation, it's slightly different than that. It'll use the word corresponding to this. It's kind of like this. And um, what he's really doing is substituting or making baptism synonymous with belief. And that wouldn't have been shocking in the Jewish culture at that time. To us, it's not quite like that, because we've had all these controversies, and also we tend to have someone can get saved and then you know you give it a couple of years maybe to check that it's kind of stuck and then you kind of start pushing them to get baptism it wasn't like that and that's not what we see in the new testament we see believe and be baptized okay the baptism was the outward experience that that was that you were saved basically it always accompanied faith so to actually use baptism as an illustration for faith wouldn't have really been shocking in any way at all to them and even in the verse it goes on to say it's not the washing of the dirt that is saving you it's not the actual physical act of washing in water that was saving you. It's, um, it's the faith that that represents. So that, that's the first point. Uh, but I do believe the origin of baptism does come from the Jewish religion. I, I believe it probably comes from the ceremonial washings in, that we find in Leviticus. The Hebrew people called it a mikvah. It's basically a big pool of water. And the priests would need to go into that and ceremonially wash themselves before service and before any number of things. It was very common. A lot of groups were baptizing in those days. It also meant that if you were to be baptised by someone, you identified with their message. You agreed with their message. And this kind of leads on to why would Jesus be baptised um, by John? Because John the Baptist said it was a baptism of repentance, but Jesus was sinless, he did not need to repent. So why is he being baptised? It's a good question. I can give you a few of my thoughts. These are not definite, not dogmatic about these, but these are my thoughts on the subject. One, it's a good way for him to show that he agrees with John the Baptist's message because Jesus was the one who came to preach repentance. So although he personally did not need to repent of sin, he did want to confirm that what John the Baptist, the message that he was preaching, this message of repentance, was an authentic message, and he had his full authority behind it. John was a prophet of the time. That's probably one reason. Another reason could be that actually he did want to identify with sinners, because he would be the one who ultimately would soon become sin for these people. So that's another reason. There may be a slightly deeper reason in the fact that John the Baptist had Levitical heritage. He was a priest. So it could be something to do with before you offer service, you did have to ceremonially wash yourself. Um, it may be that Jesus was entering into his priestly ministry and he was about to offer the ultimate sacrifice in a few years' time. 
and therefore he was doing that himself at the same time. So all of those reasons, I believe, are kind of probably part of the answer to why Jesus was baptised, but I don't see a problem with Jesus being baptised because he was sinless. I see him just kind of confirming the message of John and maybe taking it a step further now as it starts pointing towards him at that time. Um, and I believe when we see the, you know, the Spirit descend on him and the Trinity sort of appear at that time, it's a good confirmation of that. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.